So I forgot my timer, so you just just know that already. My, um, yeah, if, if second service starts walking in thinking they're late, we'll know it's time to stop. <laughs> the, uh, no, I've, I've made a note so that I can pay attention. Um, but I, I, I want, traditionally we would be moving into an Advent theme. We would have begun thinking about um, Christmas and, and preparing for that holiday, expectant of Christ's return. Um, and, and remembering that he has already come. Today, we're going we're gonna to hold that off one, one more week because we are <clears throat> trying to get through Luke in a, in a fairly reasonable amount of time. Um, and so we're going to stick with Luke chapter 9 today, and we're going to take a break starting next week for three weeks. We'll be in Psalm 96, 97, and 98. The theme of joy is rich in those. And so I'm looking forward to that, but I just wanted to let you know to, to, to be prepared and thinking towards that. Today, we're, we're kind of closing out a section of Luke. It's, it's really the close of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It doesn't close out chapter 9, but it does close out his Galilean ministry, the work that he had been doing all across the northern region of the nation of Israel. Um, and, and so Jesus has has been, ha, has been working there, and in chapter 9, a, a transition occurs. Instead of him being the one doing all the work, he draws his apostles, those he, he had called to be apostles, which were going to be leaders of his church and leaders of his mission, he draws them in even closer than they had been, and he gives them power and authority to begin to do the things that he had been doing. And it's, it's pretty impressive when you stop and think about it because this was a position of great privilege. They, they had seen and experienced Jesus' power and presence in intimacy in ways that we oftentimes are envious of. And we, we, we think things like, well, if, if we had been the apostles, you know, we would have gotten that right. If we had been able to walk with Jesus, it would be so much easier for us if we could have just walked with Jesus like the apostles did. But in spite of the privilege of being sent by Jesus, hearing his words directly to go and to preach and to teach about the coming kingdom, despite the privilege of using his power to heal disease and cast out demons, despite the privilege of serving with him. I mean, can you imagine what it was like that day that they were feeding the multitude, serving alongside Jesus, being the liaison between the people and, and, and God in flesh? The privilege of, of coming to him and, and receiving from him and bringing it to people that were hungry and in need. Despite the privilege of, of being told that they were going to get to suffer for his name. It's not something we think of privilege often, but he told them this is honor. <clears throat> Despite the privilege of three of them, at least, having stood on a mountaintop. And seeing the glory of God unveiled before them. Hearing God speak from the cloud. In spite of this privileged position, we find that these men that God chose to do extraordinary things through were very ordinary. And they struggled. And they needed to be corrected, and they needed to be trained, and they needed to be disciplined. And today, today, as we study the scripture, we're going to see their failures in faith, their failures in 
tolerance, their failures in understanding, and their failures in, uh, in humility. We're going to see sin revealed in their lives. And I think as we, as we work through it, I think I'll be able to show you that it's, the root is pride. A pride that developed most likely not because of who they were before Christ. I mean, they didn't have much to be proud about. Right? I mean, tax collector hated fishermen just on the outskirts of or on the fringes of, of society. Probably not proud because of who they were before Jesus, but probably becoming proud because of who they were because of Jesus. And truth be told, I mean, this would be the main purpose of the application, the main force, the main thrust of the application is are we not guilty of the same kind of pride and arrogance because of who Jesus has made us to be? Well, we've been talking about this from the perspective of the sent life because the disciples, the apostles had been sent and, and, the, and, and what we see Jesus doing, um, he, was, he, he was showing them, he was teaching them, training them, OJT, if you will, uh, as they had been sent and, and, and given his mission to, to accomplish. So today, the, the, the point would be that Christian, the sent life. This mission that we've been given to accomplish, this mission we've been called into and sent out on, Christian, the sent life is intended to elevate you in humility, that the world might see and believe in Jesus' glory. This is not about you making a name for yourself. This is not about you finding a way that people approve of you and you appease their feelings and make them feel comfortable in sin. This is not about us being accepted and being found to be great. It's about us finding our greatness in the one who is ultimately great. And so, as we read... Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, we will see this in the apostles, and I think it'll be easy to see it in us as well. It's on page 862, if I remember right, in the, in the Bibles in the chairs. There's obviously the version Live event that you're welcome to follow along with. Let's read the scripture. Luke, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, so Jesus has just shown himself. This is connected to what had just happened on the mountain, the transfiguration, and the three were coming down with Jesus. James, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John coming down with Jesus from the mountain. On the next day, when they come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. There's a sense of desperation in those words, right? This is his only child. This is not the first only child we've seen that was at risk, and, and the parents were so, so desperate to find help. This is my only child. And behold, the Spirit seizes him, and, suddenly he cry, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will... And will hardly leave him. So this boy, this, this only child, had been being ravaged by a demon. And not just once in a while, not like every other week. This was something that was nearly constant. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, oh, 
faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? I don't know that's something I'd want to hear Jesus say to me. (laughs) Just saying. Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. You see, already we we have been speaking about this all the way through this sent life exposition, all the way through starting in John, or I'm sorry, starting in Luke chapter 9 at the the beginning when Jesus sends out the 12, he is calling them to do the very things that he had been doing to represent him in the world. And so everything that they went out doing was a representation of his majesty, of his glory. And we see that as people go looking for Jesus because of what the apostles were doing. Herod was questioning. What are, what, who is this guy? Who is he? And so, so we see the apostles drawing attention to Jesus. And then all the way through, we, we see that Jesus' glory is shining and, and being revealed in the world because of what he is doing with and through the apostles. And so he asks the apostles, then, well, who do the people say I am? And they say, well, you're a prophet. And while they weren't getting it right, at least they understand that there was, understood that there was some special role, some special position that Jesus held. And, and, and Jesus is like, well, well, who do you say that I am? And they confessed, you are the Christ of God. You're the one that God has chosen to save his people, to establish a kingdom among his people. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And some of you are going to see the glory of God before the glory of this kingdom before you die. And, the, and, and very shortly thereafter, eight days later, He brings three of them on a mountain and he reveals his glory. He's praying and he begins to shine. As much as this chapter is about what the people have been called to do or what his apostles have been called to do, this chapter is about Jesus' majesty shining through. It's about Jesus' majesty being made known. Jesus' glory being revealed in the world. And so when this faithless and twisted generation, even his apostles, are unable to do what they've been given power to do, his majesty is revealed in the fact that he is a compassionate, merciful God. Bring your son to me. And they were all astonished. Keep going and pick it up in verse 40. Or verse 40, yeah, verse 43, the second half. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Now right now, my mind is automatically wanting to go somewhere else, right? Let, your, your, let these words sink into your ears. That means pay attention. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them and so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But just Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all 
is the one who is great. You see, there's this humility, there's this picture of Jesus' majesty, this picture of Jesus' humility. He's about to suffer at the hands of men. He's just done amazing things, astonishing things. People are amazed at his majesty, yet he says, hey, I'm going to suffer things at the hands of men. And that doesn't even, how does that even correlate? Like, how does that even contrast? But Jesus then, this great reversal, he sets this child up and he says, he who receives him receives me, and he who receives me, he's... The least of you is the greatest. These apostles, these men of God who had been given power and authority had begun in some way to think that this was their power and authority and suddenly they're the great ones. They're the majestic ones. And hey, by the way, I'm greater than you are. And I'm going to have a higher role and a higher position in the kingdom than you do. Do we not struggle with the same things? John answered in in response to Jesus' reversal, the least is the greatest. John answered, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. In mere Christianity, whoa, I just told somebody about this before I, I just got a Skype call. I forgot to, not only did I forget my timer, I forgot to turn off my notifications. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis refers to pride as the great sin. He entitles a chapter of that uh, in that way. He points to it's the beginning of all other sins. He writes this. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Charles Spurgeon commented in a sermon entitled Pride and Humility. There's nothing into which the heart of man so easily falls as pride. And yet there is no vice which is more frequently, more emphatically, and more eloquently condemned in Scripture. Well, let's just look at the Scriptures. Psalm 138, 6. For though, God, for, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs three thirty four. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble... He gives favor. Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible of the Old Testament, the the Septuagint, the the translators translated that as he resists the proud. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low. It's it's not going to elevate him. It's going to bring him down. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This is just not just an Old Testament concept, it's a New Testament concept. James, writing to the church, to the early church, James chapter 4, verse 6, but he, who, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, he's referring back to Proverbs 3, 34. 1 Peter 5, 5, the same reference back to Proverbs 3, 34. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. The irony to me is that as I searched and as I studied and as I was preparing for this, this message, I came across this reality, and you know it, you know it in your, in your mind, and you don't just don't think about it. I, I hadn't thought about it necessarily in, in these terms, but, but the world we live in is seeking in every way they can to no longer view pride as a vice or a sin, but rather a virtue. In fact, there was one article that, that I saw written in Psychology Today, it was by this, uh, this author wrote about it in, in November, uh, I can't remember the date, sometime in 2012 he wrote about it, then he wrote about it again in the same psychology, in, in, in the same magazine, wrote about it again in 2014, and then in the article in 2014, essentially the same as the one written in 2012, it said at the very top of it, that this has been updated at the beginning of 2016. So this guy, this, this doctor who's a psychologist, is fraught. I mean, he's just fighting for this idea that pride is a virtue. And then I did a search on this guy's name to understand who he was. Does he? And he hadn't just written about it in this magazine. He's written about it uh, on a blog. I mean, he, he is doing everything he can to prove to people that pride is, is not a vice, it's not a sin, it's a virtue. In fact, in the first article he wrote in 2012, he writes that we should be, and he says, in short, summing up his idea, in short, be proud of your pride. Well, he must be, he, he's got to mean something different by the word, right? Well, you would think. He builds his view out of Aristotle's teaching about what a good uh, what, what a proud person is, what right pride is. Aristotle writes this in the Nicomachean Ethics. He writes, Now the man is thought to be proud who thinks himself worthy of great things, being worthy of them. For he who does so beyond his deserts is a fool, but no virtuous man is foolish or silly. To summarize this, to, to, to think about this, basically what he's saying is every man that deserves to be proud is right to be proud. Every, every man that deserves to be seen as great, every man that is great deserves to be prideful or proud of his greatness. I mean, there's a flaw in this thinking. A drastic flaw because it's a humanistic perspective. It pits man against man. It denies the fact that we are creatures born of, made of, dreamt up of, designed by a creator who is greater than we could even fathom. And so I appreciate J.C. Ryle's thoughts here. He says, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men ought to be so humble. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as Christians. <laughs> Christians, of all people, have no right to be proud. At some point, if we are Christian people, at some point in our lives, we have had to admit that we deserve condemnation, eternal separation, eternal punishment that we deserve nothing from God, that we are sinners in, in, uh, in, in, in all justice would be that he would eternally condemn us. 
that we are deserving of death. And we as Christians, at some point, having come to this realization that we are deserving of death, have been taught and shown in the cross that we are received by grace. An unmerited, unearned, unobligated good act from God. Not because of who we are. Now we have access to this God who we should be separated from. We have peace with this God who should be condemning us. And we have been adopted into the family of this God who has every right to send us away forever. The sent life is intended to elevate you in humility that the world might see and believe in Jesus as a glory. But like these apostles, we are resistant to this. We see the resistance. We see resistance to humility in each of these stories. In verses 37 through 43, Jesus is coming down from the mountain. And, and, and we don't get all of the details in Luke's account. Luke is, is all about, he's, he's all about uh, efficiency with words. He's going to tell you what he needs to tell you with as few words as possible. You wouldn't know that being it's the longest gospel and his chapters are forever long. But, but he is doing that. And so he cuts a lot of things out and he gives us snippets of information. Mark, he gives us a, almost twice as much information about this story. There was an argument going on as Jesus and the apostles are coming down. There's an argument going on and Jesus and, and the apostles walk up on it. And, 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 and they're like, well, what's going on? And the argument comes out. It's, it's, hey, your disciples can't do what you said they could do. And even in Jesus' even in Jesus's response, we see that this was because they lacked faith. He twisted and faithless generation. And wh whether he's pointing that, whether he's saying that to everyone or just to his apostles, depending on what commentator you read from, there's a di di diverging or differences of perspective, but everyone agrees that at a minimum, the apostles are being, are being spoken to. He may be speaking to everybody, but he's definitely speaking to the apostles. These men, who at the beginning of chapter 9, we see him say, you have power and authority, go preach and go heal and cast out demons. And as a result of their lacking faith, they come across a demon they can't cast out. In Mark's gospel... In his account, he shows us or he tells us that it was because this type of demon required much prayer. But what is prayer except the fact that we are trusting in God and not ourselves? When we cry out in prayer, are we not seeking him to act on our behalf? Are we not seeking his wisdom, his power, his provision, his protection? Are we not seeking his will over our own? I'm not going to say that's always the way we pray. But if we're going to see a prayer answered in the positive form, if we're ever going to hear him say yes, it's going to be because we came to him seeking his will and not our own. Prayer in and of itself is an expression of our faith. But in the midst of this, it's not just a weak faith 
You see, Jesus isn't saying that they don't have a saving faith. These apostles are his. They have been saved. They are being saved. It's not that there's a a total lack of faith. But in this instant, in this moment, the, the faith that they are exercising is in themselves. In fact, instead of trusting him, they're leaning on their own power. A lack of faith is self-reliance. This lack of faith in God is the result of too great a faith in themselves. It's them thinking that, oh, well, look at me. I've got power and authority now. Now you get out of him, you demon. Not trusting the Lord to do his will. And when, when he didn't go, they didn't pray. They didn't seek God. How often are we guilty of seeing something happen that seems to oppose us, that seems to be an obstacle to us, that seems to be against us? And we approach the throne of God half-heartedly in prayer. Or without prayer, we don't approach him at all. Well, why aren't you doing this for me, God? Why aren't you taking care of my problems? Why aren't you on my side? I thought you were for me. How do you live your life? Are you striving to live in faith? Who's that faith placed in? The resistance to humility is self-reliance. Self-reliance, if we accomplish anything that appears to be successful, will puff us up. And make us believe that we are great. But only God is great. Verse 43 through 45, we see the fear of asking for clarity. Jesus, in this moment of contrast, everybody's amazed at what he's just done. And he says, now you listen. Now listen to me. Don't, Don't miss what I'm about to say. I'm about to suffer at the hands of men. He's, he's, he's prophesying of his death. He's talking about what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And they are so focused on themselves, so concerned for themselves, they're afraid to even try to understand what he might suffer. Afraid of what he might think. Afraid of more words like the ones they had just heard. You faithless and twisted generation. I don't want to hear that from Jesus either. But these men that have so intimately, closely, and, and, and personally walked with him and experienced his presence and his power. They have so little understanding of his grace. That when he says something they don't understand and they can't comprehend and that's hidden from them and requires him to bring more clarity to it, they're afraid. 
self-focused. It's, it's, it's about us looking at ourselves and our own interests and our own desires and our own, our own mission and our own accomplishments. Seeking to make sure that we don't miss out or that we don't suffer, that we don't hurt. There's a resistance to humility when we make our life all about us. Verse 46 through 48 is a lack of humility. Next to this contrasting statement of Jesus' suffering, of Jesus' sacrifice that's to come, these apostles, these men of God, we're like, well, hey, I'm going to be greater than you. I'm going to hold a higher position than you. Not only did they not understand what Jesus was going to suffer, they didn't understand at all how he would establish his kingdom. He highlights this by pointing to a child and and, and one who in that culture, the child would have been, would have been seen as the lowest on the, on the food chain. Like, it's not that people didn't care about children as much as, as they just, they were thought of last. It was seen and not heard, unless seen and not heard unless spoken to. I don't remember how that saying goes, but that was the idea. That they were, that they were secondary, that they were less valuable. That they didn't have as much to offer. And Jesus says, you welcome him, and when you do, you welcome me. The reality is that these men lacked humility because they were so full of their own ideals of self-promotion. Because they believed they deserved more than they really deserved, but they had earned more than they had really earned. And that in some way God was obligated to do something for them that he's not obligated to do for anyone. Spurgeon, from the previous reference to a sermon he spoke or or preached uh, before, the pride and humility. In it, he gives us this definition. Humility is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. This isn't about self-deprecation. The idea is not for us to, to roll around in the dirt and call ourselves worms because we're sinners. Because ultimately you and I as Christian and, 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 and saints in, in the kingdom and children of the king, we are no longer the worms in the dirt. But we have not attained our position or the power of God that has saved us or the, the, the presence of God in our lives. We have not attained that by our own doing. He looks at us and he sees us according to his perspectives and according to the cross. We're we're not sitting here, we're not seeking to just demean people. And even outside the church, we're not seeking to look at people as if they're less worthy or less able or less, less, less good than we are. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. The truth is, is that every person from the unborn to the nearly dead have dignity and value because they carry the image of God. And because they are God's image bearers, they are capable of pretty amazing things. 
You see it at the Tower of Babel. We talked about this a few weeks ago at the, at the Gospel and Racial Reconciliation uh, sermon. I, I brought out that, that God looked at people. And all these people speaking one language, and they, they were like, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower to the heavens. And God says, if we don't do something, they can accomplish anything. Nothing will be impossible for them. The greatness of God's image being borne out even in sinful, fallen creatures. But it's, it's nothing. It's, it's like an ant to you and me. And we see that because God has to come down to them. When he goes and he gives them different languages and he divides them and they begin to spread out across the earth, he has to come down to their tower that they had built to the heavens. Because even, even the greatness and dignity and respect we deserve as humans, even that is nothing in comparison to the greatness and glory of our God. If we are going to promote anyone or anything, it should be the image of God in each other. If we're going to give dignity or respect to anyone or anything, regardless of the person, regardless of their works, regardless of who they are, it can be given because they are image bearers of God. And when we honor the image bearer of God, we honor the God who created the creation. I saw this in uh, Chicago. I was standing on the, at the top of the Sears Tower, and I was looking out, and I was just amazed, really kind of awestruck, because, it, I mean, if you've, if you've been to Chicago and you've been at the bottom of it, it's pretty, it's like, wow, this is crazy, and you can actually go down levels because they didn't just build up, they built down. But standing out, looking over the top of it from the Sears Tower and just looking I guess it's Willis Tower now. You guys know what I'm talking about? I don't know when they changed the name. Looking out over Willis Tower, I, I was amazed. I was kind of awestruck. And, and, and I had this sense, this, this feeling that, that I typically get when I walk into the mountains. Like a couple of years earlier, I'd been in the Rocky Mountains, and I was just awestruck and amazed. The immensity of the power of it. And I thought, man, I don't know I should be feeling this way about what man has built. And it dawned on me in the middle of that. There's nothing wrong with that. Because the man who built that was built by the God who really deserves the credit. And by honoring that man, the men and the women who had given their lives to, to build that great city, I was able to worship the God who had created them. You see, this is the thing. If we're going to promote ourselves, it should be for the honor of of the king, for the majesty of Jesus Christ, for the glory of our God. But to promote ourselves simply so that we can be seen as greater. That's to twist, that's to have a twisted view of our own greatness. And it's, it's too high a view of our own greatness and too low a view of God's greatness. This resists humility. Because until we recognize who we are in light, of our creator in light of our great and glorious God, we will always seek to stand too tall. And we will never be willing to bow low enough. And so, in verse 49 through 50, we see this, this 
self-righteousness. As, the, as, as, the, as Jesus is instructing them, he's kind of disciplined them, and he's, getting, he, he's, he's teaching them, and then he turns, and John, John, one, one of the three that was on the mountain, is like, hey, Jesus, well, we saw a guy that was casting out demons in your name, but because he's not one of us, we told him to stop. This self-righteous perspective. See, in this case, they, there may have been, even been some jealousy. They, they hadn't been able to cast out a demon before, and now they're seeing this guy that's cast out a demon, and they're like, oh, well, you better stop doing that. One commentator wrote that the failure of the disciples is represented at its most basic level in this. Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status at all, but they have refused partnership with one who, didn't, who did not share the status they assumed for themselves. Bob Thune highlights this and he shows us how, how this breaks out in his gospel-centered life. He talks about it in terms of righteousness, like job righteousness. I'm, I'm more righteous than somebody else because I work hard or things like that. I think of it in terms of arrogance. I, I, we have an arrogance at our work because, oh, I'm, I'm a better worker. Think of the people. There, there's people at your work already. I, I bet they pop into your mind. You're a better worker than they are. You deserve the promotion that they got. You deserve the accolades, the pat on the back. Why didn't the boss give me that? Family arrogance. You heard all that's going on in so-and-so's family? That stuff doesn't go on in our house. Or the other end of that, I don't want anybody to know what my family deals with because I am ashamed. Theological arrogance, intellectual arrogance, schedule arrogance, all of these ways that we elevate ourselves above other people and won't partner with or won't stand next to other people in the church world, denominational arrogance. Oh, that's not a Southern Baptist church or that's not an Assembly of God church or that's a non-denominational church. We don't want anything to do with them. Oh, those Arminians, those people, they don't know what they're talking about. Don't read from them. Don't listen to them. They've got nothing good to say. In fact, we just wish they'd shut up. And the Arminians, oh, you Calvinists are the devil. I read, a, read an article yesterday from a guy at Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, a president of Southern Baptist Seminary, talking about Calvinism as a Trojan horse that's going to tear down the Southern Baptist denomination. Maybe the best thing for the Southern Baptist denomination is for it to be torn down and rebuilt so that it glorifies God and not the denomination. And just so everybody knows, we are an SBC church, and I got no problem saying that. And if somebody from the SBC listens to this, they can call me and let me know. I doubt we have to worry about that, though, but anyway. It's arrogance. It's pride. It's, 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 your, it's, it's our own desire. It's our own identity assuming some position before the God of the world. J.I. Packer in Experiencing God writes, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. We are not great, except that God has made us great. We have been called 
in this. We have been sent to be a humble people. So how do we do that? How do we grow in humility? From the text, I think, it's, I think there's plenty of pointers here. There's many others, but from the text, remember the cross. In the midst of all that was going on, Jesus ensured that he brought up the cross, the sacrifice, the suffering that he was going to endure to ensure that his people were saved. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He put on flesh to dwell among us. He emptied himself. Paul teaches in Philippians that he emptied himself. He took on a new nature. He humbled himself to the point of death. Not just any death, death on a cross. And, and he tells us this. He tells us all of this about Jesus Christ, not because he just wants to say, hey, look at Jesus, although that's a part of it. But he says this in response to, his, to, to a line that he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have the ability. We have the opportunity. God has given us the ability to humble ourselves. Well, how do we do that? Think on the cross. Remember the cross. Study the Gospels and the Scriptures. Study God's Word. But I'd rather watch some television. That's arrogance. Because you must believe you don't need God's Word. Go make disciples. Live this sent life. There is no way that we can live this life that God has called us to and not find ourselves humbled. We will find ourselves just like these apostles, being humbled by the lessons that our God cares enough to teach us in the midst of the going. And it's beautiful because they didn't, they didn't arrive at some position. They didn't arrive at some status in life and then get sent. God sent them, and on the way, on, along their going, he grew them and prepared them and made them ready to lead his mission and to, to lead his church. Rely on his power alone. Pray to him. Seek him. Ask for him to work on your behalf and the behalf of those who are lost and dying and going to hell that you know. And you have needs. You, have, you lack something. Ask, ask him and trust in his power. Seek to live in unity within his diverse family. Whether it be another denomination, another church across the street, someone of a different color or ethnicity, we are all saved by God's grace. And we are all brothers and sisters because Christ has adopted us. God has adopted us through Christ into his family. And when we stop long enough to begin to learn from one another the lessons that God has taught others, how humbling will it be to instead of being the person with the answers, you're the person that needs to learn. So, Christian, this sent life is about being elevated in humility so that Jesus' glory is seen and believed in the world. Let's pray.
Father, I am grateful for your word, even as I am convicted by your word. I am no expert, and you know the arrogance that resides within me. But I am grateful for your grace and your forgiveness. Along with me, Father, would you work this out in us, your people, that we, that we might be used, that we might be useful in your hand, that your wisdom would be evident in us, and that your power and provision would be made available to others through us. I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.